Well, it is time for us to wish our listeners who are celebrating a birthday on this March 20th a very happy birthday. We have three listeners we're aware of. Elaine Siebert, I think it is, of Sioux City. James E. Ryan from Churden. And Kathleen Glass from Fort Dodge. All of us here at Iris would like to wish the three of you a very happy birthday. And this is a reminder that you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now, here's Barb with today's obituaries. Thank you, Dennis. <clears throat> Rachel Catherine Crawford of Ames, beloved wife, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, peacefully passed away on March 15th. She was born on January 25th, 1927, in Rhinebeck, Iowa, to Renard and Sybil McGowan, and grew up alongside her two sisters, Eleanor and Ruth, in a close-knit north-central Iowa farming community during the depths of the Great Depression. It was here that Rachel learned the values of hard work, compassion for others, and the importance of family and faith. After graduating as class president from Rhinebeck High School in 1944, Rachel pursued her passion for education at Tarkio College in northwest Missouri. There, she met the love of her life and lifelong partner, Harold Crawford. The couple tied the knot in 1948 and embarked on a fulfilling journey together, settling in Story City, where they both pursued careers in teaching. They lovingly raised their two sons, Reed and Robert, and were actively involved in their community and church. In what would become a loving and supportive component of Rachel's life, she supported Harold with his first career move to Sac City to support his career. They lived a wonderful and active social life in this rural Iowa community, raising their children, playing golf, and being active members in the First Presbyterian Church. In fact, Rachel was one of the first women in her church to serve as an elder. Their third son, David, was born there in 1957. In 1965, a move to Amos became home for the rest of Rachel's life. Rachel's dedication to education led her to become an English teacher in the Huxley Ballard School System. Later, she worked for over 25 years in the registrar's office at Iowa State University, where she touched the lives of countless students, helping them with their academic journey. Rachel was a woman of strong faith and a devoted member of the Northminster Presbyterian Church. She served as an elder, deacon, Sunday school teacher, and choir member, leaving a lasting impact on her church community. She was also a proud member of PEO and the ISU Order of the Knoll. She took joy in attending Iowa State athletic events and welcoming guests from all over the world into her home. Her warmth and love touched everyone who knew her. Family was everything to Rachel, and she cherished her husband, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren deeply. Rachel is survived by her three sons, as well as her four grandchildren, and she leaves behind 13 great-grandchildren, each one a testament to the love and legacy she shared. A public gathering with the Crawford family will be held at Green Hills Retirement Community on April 4th from 3.30 to 5 p.m. A celebration of life service will be held on April 6th at 10 a.m. at the Northminster Presbyterian Church, followed by a private family graveside service at Ground Township Cemetery in Rhinebeck. In lieu of flowers, the family kindly requests that gifts and memorials be directed to Northminster Presbyterian Church, 1416 20th Street, Ames, Iowa, 50010, 
or the Harold R. and Rachel K. Crawford Multicultural Scholarship at Iowa State University Foundation, 2505 University Boulevard, Post Office Box 2330 in Ames, 50010. Online condolences may be made to Grandin Funeral and Cremation Care.com. Rachel touched the lives of many who will be dearly missed. May your memory be a source of comfort and inspiration to all who knew and loved her. Ruthie Kelly of Newton, the daughter of Lauren R. Edgington and Alice M. Ahrens, was born October 28, 1936, in Grinnell. She was a graduate of Grinnell High School and continued her education in Omaha, Nebraska at a special training center. She excelled in her studies and was requested to work at at the Pentagon in Arlington County, Virginia, where she thoroughly enjoyed learning about and working for the U.S. government. On July 25, 1964, she was united, united in marriage to Gerald Kelly in Grinnell, Iowa. Together they owned and operated Kelly Plumbing, where Ruth served as bookkeeper. Ruth was a longtime member of First Lutheran Church in Newton. She thoroughly enjoyed music and sang in the church choir, as well as attending her Bible study groups and volunteering with the church. She was also very active in the Newton Community Theater and enjoyed bowling for many years. Ruth passed on to her eternal home on March 17, 2024, at Newton Village Care Center. She was preceded in death by her parents and her husband, Gerald Kelly. Those left to honor the memory of Ruth include her daughter and son-in-law, Susan Kelly Gates and Frederick Gates of Cumming, Georgia, and her daughter, Sandra Kelly of Newton, her sister, Darla Grandsau of Grinnell, as well as the many nieces and nephews whom she loved dearly. In addition to her family, and was always willing to lend a hand or spend time just talking and telling stories, she will be missed by all. Funeral services will be held on Thursday, March 21st at 11 a.m. at the First Lutheran Church in Newton. A visitation of the family will present will be held on Wednesday, March 20th, from 5 p.m. until 7 p.m. at the Pence Reese Funeral Home in Newton. The family suggests memorials to Cassia Life, Newton Village, Alzheimer's Association, or the American Cancer Society. Pence Reese Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Roger Dwayne Mason, 78, passed away on March 16th in Des Moines. A public visitation will be held on Friday, March 22nd, from 5 until 7 p.m. at Caldwell Parish Funeral Home and Crematory at 8201 Hickman Road in Urbandale. A funeral mass will be held on Saturday, March 23rd, at 1 p.m. at Caldwell Parish Funeral Home and Crematory. Memorial contributions can be made to www.gofund.me slash C308DE72 to help Sherry and the family. And Rod Allen Collins of Urbandale, 54, passed away March 15th at Kavanaugh House in Des Moines. Rod was born August 1, 1969, to Richard and Ruth French Collins in Des Moines. A lifelong resident of the Des Moines area, he graduated from Johnston High School. He enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in 1988 and served five years. He retired from the Des Moines Fire Department in 2015. Rod is survived by his loving wife, Susanna, daughters Isabella and Alexa, brother Randy, and his mother, Ruth Ann. He was preceded in death by his father. Visitation will be held from 1 to 3 p.m. Friday, March 22nd, at Hamilton's on Westtown Parkway, at 3601 Westtown Parkway in West Des Moines. 
Funeral services with military and firefighter honors will follow at 3 p.m., also at the funeral home. Burial will take place at a later date at Iowa Veterans Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be directed to the Animal Rescue League or to the Food Bank of Iowa in loving memory of Rod. Condolences of sympathy may be expressed at hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Thank you, Barb. For those obituaries, turning back now to national news, Biden and lawmakers reach funding deal. Congress races to get bill by, to the president by the deadline. President Joe Biden and congressional leaders announced Tuesday that they had reached a government funding deal, signaling the close of a months-long saga that featured numerous shutdown threats. With a narrow window left to consider funding bills, it is possible that there will still be a brief government shutdown over the weekend. However, it will likely have little impact on services or federal workers unless it stretches into next week. Quote, we have come to an agreement with congressional leaders on a path forward for the remaining full-year funding bills, Biden said in a statement Tuesday. The House and Senate are now working to finalize a package that can quickly be brought to the House or to the floor and it will be signed immediately. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, said in a separate statement that negotiators reached agreement on spending for the Department of Homeland Security, which had become a flashpoint over the weekend. This will allow completion of the fiscal year 2024 appropriations process. Lawmakers initially planned to release the legislation on Sunday, but disagreements over border security funding got in the way of a deal. Now, lawmakers are racing to put together a bill that they can release in time to avoid the 12.01 a.m. Saturday deadline for a partial shutdown. The funding process has taken so long that the next one is about to begin. Biden released his new budget request last week. The timing was tight because the House requires a 72-hour period to consider legislation before it can be voted on. A bill released Tuesday would or could be voted on Friday. The Senate could then consider it the same day, but only if all 100 senators agree to speed up the process, leaving it vulnerable to last-minute complications. However, the agreement signals the end of the shutdown that scares that have dogged Congress and stressed federal employees for months. Every year, Congress has to pass 12 individual spending bills to fund the government over the long term. Lawmakers passed six of them earlier this month. The outstanding bills concern defense, financial services, and general government, homeland security, health and human administration and services, labor and education, the legislative branch, and state and foreign operations. Together, they fund around 70% of the federal government. All the appropriations bills were initially due on September 30 of last year. Under political pressure from hard-right lawmakers, Congress agreed to extend the deadline four times to buy more time to agree to a deal. There have been 20 federal funding gaps since 1977, according to the Congressional Research Service. About half were three days or fewer. These short gaps don't typically lead to a shutdown because agencies don't have enough time to wind down projects before funding kicks in again. If lawmakers aren't able to pass the bills in time, a longer gap would lead to a government shutdown, and that could have real effects for many Americans. A shutdown means all officials and federal agencies that aren't deemed essential have to stop working. Thousands of federal employees would be furloughed and go without pay, though they are typically paid for that time since once they do come back to work. Government subcontractors could also be out of work and would not receive back pay. The WMO issues a red alert on climate change. 
The UN Weather Agency is sounding a red alert about global warming, citing record-smashing increases last year in greenhouse gases, land and water temperatures, and melting of glaciers and sea ice, and is warning that the world's efforts to reverse the trend have been inadequate. The World Meteorological Organization said there is a high probability that 2024 will be another record-hot year. The Geneva-based agency, in a State of the Global Climate report released Tuesday, ratcheted up concerns that a much-vaulted climate goal is increasingly in jeopardy, that the world can unite and lim to limit planetary warming to more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, or 22.7 degrees Fahrenheit, from pre-industrial levels. Never have we been so close, albeit on a temporary basis at the moment, to the 1.5 degrees Celsius lower limit of the Paris Agreement on climate change, said, said Celeste Saulo, the agency's secretary general. The WMO community is sounding the red alert to the world. The 12-month period from March 2023 to February 2024 pushed beyond that 1.5 degree limit, averaging 1.56 degrees Celsius or 2.81 degrees Fahrenheit higher, according to the European Union's Copernicus Climate Service. It said the calendar year 2023 was at 1.4 degrees Celsius or 2.66 degrees Fahrenheit, but a record hot start to this year pushed beyond that level for the 12-month average. Earth's issuing a distress call, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said. The latest State of the Global Climate Report shows the planet on the brink. Fossil fuel pollution is sending climate chaos off the charts. Omar Bradar, WMO's Chief of Climate Monitoring, said the year after an El Nino event, the cyclical warming of the Pacific Ocean that affects global weather patterns normally tends to be warmer. So we cannot definitely say about 2024 is going to be the warmest year, but, I would, but what I would say is there is a high probability that 2024 will again break the record of 2023. But let's wait and see, he said. January was the warmest January on record, so the records are still being broken. The latest WMO findings are especially stark when compiled in a single report. In 2023, more than 90% of ocean waters experienced heat wave conditions at least once. Glaciers monitored since 1950 lost the most ice on record. Antarctic sea ice retreated to its level, lowest level ever. Topping all the bad news, what worries me the most is that the planet is now in a meltdown phase, literally and figuratively, given the warming and mass lost from our polar ice sheets, said Jonathan Overpeck, dean of the University of Michigan School for Environmental and Environment and Sustainability, who wasn't involved in the report. Solo called the climate crisis the defining challenge that humanity faces and says it combines with a crisis of inequality as seen in growing food insecurity and migration. WMO said the impact of heat waves, floods, droughts, wildfires, and tropical cyclones exacerbated by climate change was felt in lives and livelihoods on every continent in 2023. This list of record-smashing events is truly distressing, though not a surprise given the steady drumbeat of extreme events over the past year, said University of Arizona climate scientist Kathy Jacobs, who also wasn't involved in the WMO report. The full cost of climate change accelerated events across sectors and regions has never been calculated in a meaningful way, 
but the cost to biodiversity and to the quality of life of future generations is incalculable. But the agency also acknowledged a glimmer of hope in trying to keep the earth from running too high a fever. It said renewable energy generation capacity from wind, solar, and water power rose nearly 50% from 2022 to a total of 510 gigawatts. The report comes as climate experts and government ministers are gathered in the Danish capital, Copenhagen, on Tuesday and Friday, on Thursday and Friday, to press for greater climate action, including increased national commitments to fight global warming. Each year, the climate story gets worse. Each year, WMO officials and others proclaim that the latest report is a wake-up call to decision-makers, said University of Victoria climate scientist Andrew Weaver, a former British Columbia lawmaker. Yet, each year, once the 24-hour news cycle is over, far too many of our elected leaders return to political grandstanding, partisan bickering, and advancing policies with demonstrable short-term outcomes, he said. More often than not, everything else ends up taking precedence over the advancement of climate policy. And so, nothing gets done. Ukraine is open to loan plan from some Republicans. In a potential breakthrough for Kyiv, Ukraine has indicated they are open to a conservative Republican proposal to receive U.S. foreign aid in the form of a loan. Ukraine's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Dmitro Kuluba, did not shoot it down in a Tuesday briefing with reporters. Ukraine receives a mixture of loans and grants already, he told USA Today. We're not shocked to hear the proposal coming from the United States, but the question is, of course, how about the overall structure of the assistance that will be provided, Kaluba said. He added, we haven't seen any details of this proposal except the broad mentioning of loans instead of grants. If pushed forward, the move would signal the most significant breakthrough in the months-long impasse between the White House and the GOP as Ukraine continues to struggle in the battlefield. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham has been the most vocal proponent and said he personally floated the idea during a meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kyiv on Monday. Sources have told USA Today that the proposal is being shopped on Capitol Hill and to the White House. Former President Donald Trump proposed turning aid into a no-interest waivable loan on the campaign trail back in February. It's called a loan. Give them the money, and if they can pay it back, they pay it back. If they can't pay it back, they don't have to pay it back because they've got some problems, Trump said in, a, said in South Carolina. Since Russia invaded in February of 2022, the Pentagon has provided about $30 billion of military aid to Ukraine. The main way of providing aid has been through transferring billions of worth of equipment and ammunition from existing Pentagon stocks. In February, the Senate passed a $95 billion bipartisan package that would send funding to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. However, House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, has pledged not to take up the Senate's foreign aid package because it doesn't include any border provisions. After House Republicans opposed an immigration package that was initially tied to the bill. And another little article here, Getty says Kate's photo of QE2 was also edited. Getty Images is flagging another photo from the royal family, one week after Princess Kate's photo editing incident. The major photo agency has set a photo featuring Queen Elizabeth II with two of her grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren posted on the Prince and Princess of Wales official Instagram account was digitally enhanced. 
a Getty spokesperson confirmed to USA Today. The news comes amid increased scrutiny on Kate and her health. The photo features Queen Elizabeth seated on a green sofa surrounded by Prince William and Kate's children, Prince George, Princess Charlotte, and Prince Louis, and their cousins Lady Louise Mountainbotten Windsor, Isla Phillips, Savannah Phillips, Lena Tyndale, Lucas Tyndale, Mia Tyndale, and James, Earl of Wessex. The portrait reportedly taken by Princess Kate at Balmoral Castle in August of 2022, just a few weeks before Queen Elizabeth's death on September 7th, shows the late monarch posing with the children. It was released by Buckingham Palace in April of 2023 to mark the late Queen Elizabeth's 97th birthday, five months after her death. In a statement to USA Today on Tuesday, a representative for Getty Images said the photo agency is reviewing handout images or photos provided to the news and media organizations. Getty Images is undertaking a review of handout images in accordance with its editorial policy and is placing an editor's note on images where the source has suggested they could be digitally enhanced, the statement read. The statement comes after Kate's apology for a photo shared on the same Prince and Princess of Wales Instagram account that also was removed from use by several major photo agencies. The Associated Press, AFP, and Reuters issued a kill notification shortly after the family photo showing Kate seated on a chair and surrounded by her children and was pulled due to, quote, manipulation. A UN group tells profits from a forced labor. Illegal profits from forced labor worldwide have risen to obscene amount of $236 billion per year, the UN Labor Agency reported Tuesday, with sexual exploitation to blame for three-fourths of the take from a business that deprives migrants of money they can send home, swipes jobs from legal workers, and allows the criminals behind it to dodge taxes. The International Labor Organization said the tally for 2021, the most recent year covered in the painstaking international study, marked an increase of 37 percent, or $64 billion, compared with its late last estimate published a decade ago. That's a result of both more people being exploited and more cash generated from each victim, Aiello said. Quote, $236 billion. This is the obscene level of annual profit generated from forced labor in the world today. The first line of the report's introduction said, That figure represents earnings effectively stolen from the pockets of workers by those who coerce them to work, as well as money taken from remittances of migrants and lost tax revenue from governments. ILO officials noted that such a sum equaled the economic output of EU member Croatia and eclipsed the annual ref revenues of tech giants like Microsoft and Samsung. Forced labor can encourage corruption, strengthen criminal networks, and incentivize further exploitation, ILO said. Its Director General, Gilbert Hongwo, wants international cooperation to fight the racket. People in forced labor are subject to multiple forms of coercion, the deliberate and systematic withholding of wages being amongst the most common, he said in a statement. Forced labor perpetuates cycles of poverty and exploitation and strikes at the heart of human dignity. We now know the situation has only got worse, Youngbo said. The ILO defines forced labor as work that's imposed against the will of the employee and exacted under penalty, or the threat of one. It can happen at any phase of employment, during recruitment, in living conditions associated with work, or through forcing people to stay in a job when they want to leave it. It can happen at any phase of employment, 
On any given day in 2021, an estimated 27.6 million people were in forced labor, a 10% rise from five years earlier, the ILO said. The Asia-Pacific region was home to more than half of those, while Africa, the Americas, and Europe, Central Asia each represented about 13% to 14%. Some 85% of the people affected were working in privately imposed forced labor, which can include slavery, serfdom, bonded labor, and activities like forms of begging where cash taken in goes to the benefit of someone else, the ILO said. The rest were in forced labor imposed by government authorities, a practice not covered in the study. Some critics have railed against modern-day slavery in places like the prison system in Alabama. ILO ex experts said government-imposed forced labor was excluded from the report because of a shortage of data about it, even if estimates show nearly 4 million people were affected by it. The ILO certainly decries instances of state-imposed forced labor wherever they occur, and whether that's in prison systems or the abuse of military conscription or other forms or manifestations of state-imposed forced labor, says God Lyon, an ILO senior policy officer. While the report said just over one-fourth of the victims worldwide were subject to sexual exploitation, it accounted for nearly 173 billion dollars in profits, or nearly three-quarters of the global total, a sign of the higher margins generated from selling sex. Some 6.3 million people face situations of forced commercial sexual exploitation on any given day three years ago, and nearly four in five of those victims were girls or women, the ILO said. Children accounted for more than a quarter of the total cases. Forced labor and industry tallied in a distant second at $35 billion, followed by services at nearly $21 billion, agriculture at $5 billion, and domestic work at $2.6 billion, the Geneva-based labor agency said. Manuela Tomei, ILO's Assistant Director General for Governance, told a conference la launching the report in Brussels, where the European Union's parliament is close to finalizing new rules aimed at cracking down on forced labor, that no region is immune to the practice of forced labor, and all economic sectors are involved. While countries including the United States were cited at the conference for efforts to fight forced labor, Tomei said the world was far away from UN goals to eradicate forced labor by 2030. Valdis Dabromski, the executive vice president of the European Commission, called the ILO findings shocking and appalling. Forced labor is opposite of social justice, he said. Let me be very clear. Business must never be done at the expense of workers, dignity, and labor rights. And now again in some state news from Maryland, from Annapolis, Maryland, State Delegate Susan McComas has received a new accusation in recent weeks, being woke. The reason? She thinks that Maryland, like 48 other states in the Union, should have a state song. McComas introduced a bill that creates a task force to propose a new state song to the General Assembly during an interview in her House office. From Detroit, Michigan. Detroit plans to name its new transit center near a massive Amazon fulfillment center in honor of a bus driver whose death from COVID-19 in 2020 highlighted the life-threatening risks facing essential workers at the time. In Minneapolis, Uber and Lyft said they will be ceasing operations on May 1st after the Minneapolis City Council voted to override a mayoral vote or mayoral veto and require the ride-sharing services to enact a pay raise for its drivers. In Jackson, Mississippi, a documentary film more than four years in the making about fabled former Jackson radio station WZZQ 
will see its premiere this May on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The documentary is a culmination of years of work on the meteoric rise and lightning quick fall of Jackson's first freeform rock station. And in St. Louis, Missouri, a woman was arrested and is now facing charges in the death of her four-year-old daughter from a drug overdose, the St. Louis Police Department said. Great Falls, Montana, in some ways, the return of the Russell Art Auction to Western Art Week was a return to normalcy. For the first time in five years, the famed high-stakes Western Art Auction came home to the traditional art show held during Charlie Russell's birthday during the final days of winter. Well, that's about it for now. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Barbara Heck and Dennis May, and it has been our pleasure to read for you. Now we're going to take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Dennis May and Barb Heck. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break. No, we won't. We'll go right into Welcome Back. Welcome back. There we are. Sorry about that. Hi. <laughs> your new readers, yes, Patty Daniels and Pam Rhodes. Welcome back. Your, uh, we'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today, and here's Pam with the first article. 
Do not tell me what social media I can use. This week began with the U.S. Supreme Court hearing arguments in a free speech case that highlights the dangers of government interfering in private citizen speech, a huge First Amendment no-no. The Biden administration has had its hands slapped by lower courts for its efforts to coerce social media giants like X, formerly Twitter, and Facebook to silence or downplay speech it considered misinformation or disinformation. Some of this speech had to do with the heated debates over COVID-19, from its origins to lockdowns to masks to vaccines. The government wanted to control the conversation when the public needed more information, not less. And the speech Biden administration and didn't like wasn't limited to the pandemic. It also wanted to dampen discussions about President Joe Biden's son Hunter and other issues it had a vested interest in. This case comes before the Supreme Court just as Congress is pushing bipartisan legislation that targets TikTok. The Biden administration's effort to influence private companies' content moderation serves as a warning against government involvement in any of these platforms. Republicans and Democrats alike are concerned about the national security implications of having 170 million Americans using TikTok, an app that's owned by the Chinese company ByteDance and thus influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. The new legislation seeks to force ByteDance to sell TikTok or face a ban in the United States if it doesn't do so within a specific time frame. It passed the U.S. House last week, and Biden has said he'll sign it if it gets to his desk. The effort has brought together some odd coalitions. For instance, former House Speaker Tic-Tac-Toe Nancy Pelosi, a staunch Democrat, and Republican Florida Senator Marco Rubio are in support of the bill. And then you have former President Donald Trump on the side of the Progressive Squad members, Representatives Ihan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, in opposing it. This gets even more confusing when you consider the switcheroo that Trump and Biden have both done on the issue. As president, Trump had signed an executive order seeking to ban TikTok, but was shot down by the courts. Biden ditched the order entirely when he became president. Now, Trump hates the idea of a ban, and Biden loves it, even though Biden's campaign has started a TikTok account to make the 81-year-old more relatable to young people. There aren't great explanations for these shifting stances, other than it seems must seem politically advantageous for the respective parties. I firmly believe China is a threat. And for that reason, I have never been tempted to download TikTok on my phone. But millions of Americans have taken that risk, and many use the platform to boost their businesses and express themselves in a variety of ways. They should have that right. Getting the government involved in determining what platforms are okay for us to use feels too much like what China itself does to its citizens in blocking wide swaths of the Internet. If this bill would become law, it's almost certain it would face legal challenges, 
just as Trump did when he tried to ban TikTok. Last year, Montana attempted to prevent its residents from using TikTok, and that legislation hit legal roadblocks too. There would be serious concerns about the impact that this might have on speech rights of the users of TikTok, Jennifer Huddleston, a technology policy research fellow at the Cato Institute, told me. You potentially have the government foreclosing a venue for speech. If it's going to limit speech in such a sweeping way, the government has a high bar to prove that its national security concerns are valid and that this would be the least restrictive means for limiting speech, Huddleston said. You're going to have to show that there's not something else that could resolve those national security concerns, even if they are valid. That would have less of an impact on speech, she said. The legislation is written in a vague way, giving the Biden administration and future administrations a lot of freeway to potentially limit other apps with any ties to a U.S. adversary. This should make all of us uncomfortable. It's simply giving the government more power than it deserves to limit our speech. A better approach would be for the government to warn citizens about the potential risks of using TikTok or other apps similar to issuing travel advisories to other countries. And as Biden and his administration have demonstrated, you can't trust the government to act in citizens' best interest. It acts in its own. This article written was, was written by Ingrid Jacques, who is a com- columnist at USA Today. You can contact her at ijacques at usatoday.com or on X, formerly Twitter, at Ingrid underspace Jacques. Here's the real story on undocumented migrants and crime. Written for us by Alex Naraste. Jose Antonio Ibarra, who federal authorities said entered the United States illegally in 2022, was arrested last month in, in Georgia in the killing of Lakin Riley, a 22-year-old nursing student. This case and others like it are gaining national attention through a debate excuse me, during a debate over immigration policy and border security. In his State of the Union address on March 7th, President Joe Biden mentioned the accused killer was an illegal. As tragic as these cases are, analyzing the broader facts is crucial before changing public policy. Otherwise, the government could do more harm than good. According to my latest research, Undocumented migrants in Texas were about 26% less likely to be convicted of homicide than native-born Americans over the decade of 2013 to 2022. Legal immigrants were about 61% less likely. The homicide conviction rate averaged 2.2 per 100,000 and undocumented migrants over those 10 years, compared with 3.0 for native-born Americans. Those who came here illegally committed about 6% of all murders for which there were convictions, compared with 90% committed by native-born Americans. At the same time, undocumented migrants were 7.5 
4% of Texas' population, and native-born Americans were 82%. Most who entered Texas illegally are from Latin America and the Caribbean. Compared with the entire region, they have a criminal conviction rate of about 6.5 times lower. Even if we assume that the real rate of murders by undocumented immigrants is 50% higher than the conviction rate, they still have a lower homicide rate than native-born Americans convicted of homicide in Texas and substantially below those in Latin America and the Caribbean. Suppose you think there's a lower illegal immigration population in Texas than I estimate. In that case, the rate of that population's homicide convictions will be slightly higher, but still below that of native-born Americans. Regardless of the measures, legal immigration, uh, excuse me, legal immigrants have the lowest homicide conviction rate of all. There are three reasons to focus on Texas. It's a border state with more than 2 million undocumented migrants and is the epicenter of a vast increase in illegal border crossers since 2020. Texas takes criminal justice seriously. It has no sanctuary jurisdictions. It harshly punishes criminals, and Republicans have controlled Texas for more than 20 years. Texas is the only state that keeps data on the immigration status of convicted criminals. The third point is key. Immigration data is taken when suspects are arrested, but it isn't perfect. After conviction, authorities investigate prisoners more closely to identify undocumented immigrants better, but they concentrate on those convicted of the worst crimes, like homicide. This means researchers should well uh, should wait a few years to tally up criminals who came here illegally and focus on serious crimes like homicide to compare their crime rates with native-born Americans and legal immigrants. Undocumented migrants commit fewer homicides for many reasons. First, the punishments are harsher. They get deported. Second, many came from more violent countries because they wanted more safety. Third, they mostly leave their families, friends, and cultures behind because they want a better future for themselves and their children. People like that are just less likely to be criminals in the first place. In the event that they do commit homicides, they typically kill people they know who are mostly undocumented immigrants. That's one reason why the death of Lake and Riley, a stranger to Ibarra, is, an, is shocking. According to the FBI, of homicides where we know the prior relationship, nearly 80% of the killers know their victims. Few people are murderers, and undocumented migrants are less likely to commit homicide than native-born Americans in Texas. Still, some do commit homicide, and that fact is no consolation to victims and their families, not should it comfort them. Killers and other violent and Property offenders should be arrested, tried, convicted, and severely punished, no matter their immigration status. Undocumented immigrants convicted of violent and property crimes should then be deported with a total ban on returning to the United States. Nonetheless, illegal immigration is not the source of the crime wave of recent years. 
All states should keep the immigration and crime data like Texas does. We need to punish the actual criminals and stop blaming an entire population for crimes they are less likely to commit than native-born Americans. Now, Alex Norris is the vice president for economic and social policy studies at the Cato Institute. Here is the schedule for sports on TV for today, Wednesday, March 20th. All times are in the Eastern Time Zone. AHL Hockey, 7 p.m. NHLN Springfield at Lehigh Valley. College Basketball Men's, 6.40 p.m. TRU-TV, <coughs> excuse me. NC2A Tournament, Grambling State versus Montana State, first four game, Dayton, Ohio. 7 p.m. ESPN2, NIT Tournament, St. Joseph's at Seton Hall, first round. 9 p.m. ESPN2, NIT Tournament, VCU at Villanova, first round. 9.10 p.m., TRU-TV, NC2A Tournament, Colorado versus Boise State, first four game, Dayton, Ohio. College Basketball Women's, ESPNU, NC2A Tournament, Presbyterian versus Sacred Heart, first four game, Columbia, South Carolina. 9 p.m., ESPNU, NC2A Tournament, Columbia versus Vanderbilt, first four game, Blacksburg, Virginia. College Lacrosse, Men's, 2 p.m., PAC-12N, Air Force at Utah. College Softball, 6 p.m., ACCN, South Carolina at Clemson. PAC-12N, Sacramento State, at California, 8 p.m., ACCN, Texas at Florida State. Golf, 1 a.m. Thursday, on golf, DP World Tour, the Porsche Singapore Classic, first round, Laguna National Golf Course Club, Singapore. MLB Baseball, 6 a.m., ESPN. L.A. Dodgers versus San Diego, Seoul, South Korea. 1 p.m., MLBN, Spring Training, New York Mets versus Miami, Jupiter, Florida. 4 p.m., MLBN, Spring Training at San Francisco versus L.A. Dodgers. And there is a... a, a Princess with two small S's inside that, and I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. And this is at Tempe, Arizona. 9 p.m., MLBN, Spring Training, L.A. Dodgers, again the two S's, versus Kansas City at Surprise, Arizona. NBA Basketball, 7.40 p.m., ESPN, Milwaukee at Boston, 10.05 p.m., ESPN, Memphis at Golden State, NHL Hockey, 7.30 p.m., TNT and Max, Toronto at Washington, 
10 p.m. TNT and Max, Minnesota at Los Angeles. Soccer, men's, 3.30 p.m. FS2, international friendly, San Marino versus St. Kitts and Nevis, Saraville, San Marino. Tennis, 11 a.m. Tennis, Miami Open, ATP slash WTA, first round. Round, excuse me, 7 p.m. Tennis, Miami Open, ATP slash WTA, first round. I have time for another sports article. To play or not to play in the NIT for Iowa, the choice is obvious. Written for us by Tyler Talkman of the Register. Iowa City. On Sunday, Tom Crean delivered a seemingly, uh, searingly passionate monologue revolving around a topic that has come somewhat controversial. Some programs had their hopes of making March Madness crushed with the release of the NCAA tournament uh, bracket on Selection Sunday. If that happens, there is still the National Invitation Tournament, the NIT. But some have opted out of playing in the NIT. The question, with the fast-paced nature of college athletics, which includes NIL and the transfer portal, has become more polarizing to play or not to play in the NIT. Crane, the former head coach of Marquette Indians and Georgia, who now appears on SBN, delivered a message that gained traction on social media. There's no question about it. I would want to coach. I would want to develop my team, Crane said. You've got bigger staff than you've ever had. There's plenty of time for the portal. There's plenty of time to talk to recruits. There's plenty of time to negotiate NIL deals. There's not plenty of time to play. There's not plenty of time to get your players on the floor and give them a chance to get better. This discussion is relevant to Iowa men's basketball. The Hawkeyes missed the 2024 NCAA tournament, breaking a streak of four consecutive bids to the Big Dance. And unlike some other programs, such as Oklahoma and Pitt, Iowa elected to play in the NIT. The Hawkeyes were set to play Kansas State at Carver Hawkeye Arena on Tuesday night in the first round of the event. There's a little, there is little doubt about how Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey feels about the decision. In fact, it might not even be a decision at all for him. I would never consider not playing in the NIT, McCaffrey said. We want to keep playing. We want to keep coaching. The players want to keep playing, and that's what we're supposed to be doing now. The modern landscape of college sports has added new ingredients to the discussion. The transfer portal has created a more pressing need to begin recruiting quickly. Programs in the NCAA tournament are now tasked to juggle trying to advance in the event while also giving attention to building for the future. That presents the question, is it worth it to play in the NIT? 
For many Power 5 programs, making the NCAA tournament is the barometer for success, and the goal of winning a national title is not achievable because you aren't in the event. The NIT is still competitive, but far less glamorous. It is possible to recruit the transfer portal and play at the same time. Uh, that's obvious, given how teams in the NCAA tournament operate. But could a, time, uh, could a program be better off pouring all of its time and resources into transfer portal recruiting? Maybe for some programs it does. It's clear where McCaffrey stands. This is a ridiculous conversation, he said. It's obvious what the value is. People don't want to play. That's on them. Ask them why they don't want to play. We're playing. We want to play. We're going to continue to play. We're going to get better. It's obvious. There are clear benefits to playing in the NIT, particularly in Iowa's situation. The Hawkeyes have some young building blocks. The four scholarship freshmen, Owen Freeman, Lodgy Dembele, Brock Harding, and uh, Price Sanford, were part of Iowa's regular rotation. Getting them more time on the floor will continue to help their development. If Iowa were to make a deep run in the NIT, that experience could be of value as Iowa tries to reach bigger and better things with, all, with that group in the future. There's also the simple fact of getting to play basketball. Ben Creaky, for example, will have exhausted his college eligibility following this season. Playing in the NIT allows him to continue his career at Iowa. Athletes, especially at this level, are competitive. Playing in a tournament like the NIT provides solid competition. It's another chance to get together with your brothers and play basketball, Junior Peyton Sanford said following Iowa's loss to Ohio State in the Big Ten tournament. When we get there, I'm going to be fired up and be the same old Peyton. Even though it's not what we dreamed of and what our goal was, if you can't get ready to play a basketball game, then you don't belong in this sport. There is no right or wrong answer in this debate. It is just whatever fits each program best. It's obvious where Iowa stands. More important than the choice, whatever it might be, is actually taking advantage of the opportunity. Now, you can follow um, Tyler Talkman on X at Tyler uh, T15. His email is ttach-man at gannett.com. Now, oh, let me describe to you this photo. The caption is, Iowa guard Tony Perkins, he's number 11, against Iowa State Center Felix Okparo during a Big Ten Conference tournament game on March 14th. There's a big photograph of a man his his left hand is holding the basketball and he's shooting to the basket and there's another gentleman looking very upset that he got the shot. Pam? We're going to read Dear Abby now. Bride-to-be walks a fine line for two groups of bridesmaids. Dear Abby, I recently started planning my wedding. 
Half the friends I want as bridemaids are very conservative. They think sex is sacred and should be talked about only discreetly, not joked about, mentioned on TV, etc. I used to hold similar views, but I no longer do. Neither do the other half of the girls I want as bridesmaid. My dream bachelorette party is the kind you see in the movies, a group of girls going out on the town, getting tipsy, maybe being a little stupid, nothing dangerous, with sexy games and favors, and casually swapping sex tips and double entendre. This may not be possible with my straight-laced friends, whom I really like and would like to include. I pick up on others' feelings easily, so I can't ignore when someone around me is unhappy. I want all my girlfriends to enjoy the party, but two or three of them won't appreciate the humor of drinking from a phallus-shaped straw. Should I split the guest list and have one prudish party and one sexy one? Signed, good slash bad girl in the East. Dear girl, that's an excellent idea, and we all know which one you are going to enjoy. Dear Abby, I just found out my husband has been texting with his high school sweetheart for the last three years. He contacted her and shares all day-to-day -day activities, like our vacations, new dog, etc. She lives 2,500 miles away. She's divorced, retired like us, and has children and grandchildren. I snooped and read his email. I can tell by her responses that she is being polite. I don't understand why he contacted her after so many years and why he shares everything with her, as we have a close relationship and share everything. He did mention a year ago that he was in touch with her. I didn't think much about it then, but now that I know how long this has been going on, I'm wondering why. Should I be concerned about this signed, puzzled in Maine? Dear puzzled, what is happening could be innocent, or it could be crossing a line. You will never know until you discuss this with your husband. You may not have to disclose that you read the text if you say you recalled him mentioning that they were in touch a little while back and let the conversation evolve from there. Dear Abby, I recently received an evite to a surrogate baby shower. I was happy to attend each guest was asked to bring a box of diapers, our favorite children book, and a donation to help cover the surrogate expenses. A written explanation of how expensive the surrogate process is was also included. In my opinion, when the couple started the surrogacy process, they were aware of how expensive it would be, and to ask the shower attendees to contribute to it is a little nervy. What is the proper etiquette? Signed, Wandering in Nevada. Dear Wandering, Snow, soliciting the donation was over the top. I can't help but wonder how many inv invitees declined the invitation because of it. To ask for money was tacky. Now you can contact Abby at www.dearabby.com. 
That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Patty Daniels, and my partner at the microphone has been Pam Rhodes. Earlier, you heard 